Yo, yo, what up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do With My Life podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sokol, and I am stoked that you are here kicking it with us today. Today we've got my homeboy, Matt Diavella, joining us for a chat about minimalism. And the reason that I'm particularly excited about Matt being here is because Matt is a homie of mine. We first met maybe five years ago when he randomly tweeted me after seeing Sensify online. And, you know, back in those days, I was always inclined to meet up with anyone who ever said anything nice about my work or kind of felt like they got me. And I said, all right, well, let's let's kick it. And, you know, we kicked it and we've become quite good friends since then. Um, but Matt uh, is just awesome. He, you know, I don't really know how to best describe him. He's a filmmaker. He's a minimalist. He's a stargazer. And he's directing some upcoming movies, which are quite exciting. And we'll get into that a little bit more today. But Matt's worked with everyone from Dwayne Wade to Reebok to a bunch of my favorite rappers, shooting videos for them and doing video production work. And uh, if you've seen any of the videos that I've done that look halfway decent, it's probably because Matt has done them with me. So at this point, we've collaborated on, I think, at least five projects uh, together. And it's been really cool to watch his journey of also trying to figure out what to do in order to do work that he loves and make a fulfilling lifestyle out of that and to watch his journey over the last few years. So today's topic of conversation has mostly to do with minimalism. And you might be like, what the hell is minimalism? And if that's you, stick around because it's going to be interesting. And if you already know about minimalism, well, then I think you're really going to love this interview. So we start off by diving into what minimalism is, why it's important, and that leads us to the topic of success and figuring out what that means for you. Uh, in the interview today, we do dive into topics that excite me, like looking at the American dream and the 2016 version of it that many of us may no longer be conscious of because we're living with an outdated map of what that looks like, right? Um, for the upcoming release of Matt's movie called Minimalism, which is a full-length featured featured length documentary, uh, which is coming out in the upcoming months, an amazing movie. I got to see a pre-screening of it. And, um, you know, he's interviewed sociologists, economists, psychologists, just looking at the social landscape of where we are in our consumer culture and how that lines up with our happiness. And in the interview, we then dive into, well, what changes can we make? What actions can we take immediately after hearing today's interview in order to harness the power of minimalism? And uh, it's just a cool interview. I was a bit sick when we recorded it, so if you hear me brain farting, you know why, but I'm confident that Matt did a great job of making this a highly wisdom-packed interview. So with no further ado, why don't we jump in and enjoy it? Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jacob. Yeah, man. I'm stoked to kick it with you. This feels like the first podcast I'm doing with someone who's like not just a professional friend, but like someone who like... I'd be like, yo, what's up, dude? You want to go kick it? And you'd be there. And so it feels kind of fun. Yeah, man, totally. I, I actually have seen some of the, the talent that you've been bringing on the show, show lately. So honored to be amongst them. Yeah, right on, man. Right on. Well, I'm stoked. And, um, you know, I was thinking about how we should start this off and, and you know, for everyone who's listening and just the community at large. And I was thinking that we would just play with the broad general question and then unpack it from there. But, you know, what what the hell is minimalism uh, and, you know, how did the film come to be? That's a great question. Um, so I, I guess I could start from my own personal experience and when I found out about minimalism, because I think that it's while my particular story, the details are going to be different than a lot of other people's stories. I think there are some wider themes that are very common amongst, especially millennials today, um, who are now embracing minimalism. It's something that you're seeing more and more in popular culture. You're seeing it on TV. You're seeing um, now a film about it. You, how many blogs have come up over the past probably eight years about minimalism? And it seems like it's a movement that's just growing. And I think there's a reason for that growth. And I think it's because of 
the, the time that we're living in now. Um, but I found out about minimalism. I had graduated from college and it was, I guess you could say a low point in my life where, first of all, I graduated with about $95,000 in student loan debt. Um, like a lot of, um, millennials today, a lot of people graduating from college, they're just kind of burdened with all this debt. But only 95 then, grand in debt, dude? You, only 95 grand. And then, I, and then I did the smartest thing I could imagine, which was to buy a brand new car. Um, and I got like the nicest one, the one that was on the showroom that had, well, I mean, granted it was a Kia, but it was, they had like the fake leather interior, two doors. They had the the lights inside that went along with the music as it played really thin tires, which ended up screwing me over, uh, because how many potholes you hit and then you have to replace a tire cost 200, $300 every time, um, I got into it or went over a little speed bump. So there was that, and I was burdened with a lot of that while at the same time trying to run my own business. And so about two months after college, I'm trying to pay rent, and I have my student loan debt coming in in four months. i got to start paying it or else I have to defer it. So I just decide I can't do this. I need to break my lease and move home with my parents. Um, and that's not something that you want to do um, when, right when you graduate from college. I feel like you have all this freedom in college. And then going back to live with my parents with my four younger siblings was not the ideal situation for me. Um, and, and one of the main things is because I had this idea about success and what it was. And success to me was having a big house and having a nice car or a Kia and having all of these things in my life that kind of showed that I was successful, that showed the world that I was successful. But I didn't really think about those things um, personally, about what actually success was to me. So then it was actually like, it was a, a series of, of um, coincidences, I guess, where I was watching a late night program and I heard about um, this director who had given up all of his things. He was multimillionaire and he moved into a, a, a tiny house, a trailer. And I was like, that's cool. And then I started to see this stuff on Twitter. I think at that same time is when I linked up with you on Twitter. And actually, yeah, because you, you had shared the minimalists uh, they have the most popular, I think, minimalism lifestyle blog on the planet. And you'd share that. And I'm like, what is, this? What is minimalism? What's this all about? Um, I had seen an article that you had shared and I read into it and I just read through a lot of their posts and it just really resonated with me. It was this idea that you could, uh, to be more aware of the things that are coming into your life, it starts really with the material objects. Um, so the things that we buy, we're obviously a very consumer driven society. So, and it was this idea of paring down what you have, first of all. So looking around at all these things that you just acquire, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, and saying, do I use this? Uh, when's the last time I looked at this? L even looking at old yearbooks or old memorabilia, things that you've acquired over the years that have been sitting in a closet, you just never look at. The average home has 200,000 things, um, which can be overwhelming for a lot of people. Um, and then, so I started that way. I started just paring down some of the stuff, looking at what I had in my home, and then focusing on what was important. And I did keep a lot of things. I still had a lot of stuff that I used and that was valuable to me, my computer, obviously clothing. Um, I did get rid of probably 80% of my clothing. Mm -hmm. And then really what happened was when I started to get rid of these material possessions, what happened is I could focus more uh, and actually prioritize and set this de definition of success to me. Because if now I'm not pursuing the car, the house, uh, all these things that society kind of um, pushes you towards uh, as a whole, it's kind of a cultural movement, I guess. It's, 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 it's why we watch these reality shows, because we're drawn to those um, kinds of material objects and, and material desires. So then once... I put that aside and, you know, some of those desires pop up from time to time and you kind of like meditation, you just push it to the side. Now I'm like, okay, I have to define what success is to me. What does, what does it look like? And that's where I think minimalism is really is taking root in our culture is, is people pushing aside this common idea of success, this common idea of the, the traditional path to take and defining a path of their own. What did you come up with with that question as what is success? I think what I found is, and this is something we've talked about a lot, is that success is 
it's evolving. It always changes because at that time I'd probably set, I'd set these goals. I wanted to make my first feature length documentary, um, which minimalism happened to be. And it's like you, that's, that's to be able to focus on work that's meaningful and important to me, something that I care about. That was, uh, to be successful. And then I did that. Okay. So now what, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like reprioritizing and say, um, continuing to, to focus on those things that are meaningful, but the, they change over time. And I think that with that comes a sense of balance. I think I'm most successful when I find a balance in my life between, um, you know, relationships, between work, between like adventure and fun and, and, and travel and more personal experiences. Uh, and I think that there are certain times in my life where that balance gets out of whack. Um, you know, life's not perfect. Obstacles come in your way. Sometimes you get pressed with a deadline that you have to complete uh, in a certain amount of time and then you sacrifice other things, but then to recalibrate after that. Uh, I think that when I find a balance in my life between all those things, um, I'm generally, I feel successful. Yeah. So success for you is uh, about doing meaningful work and, that, and that's something in part doing meaningful work and that's something that we hear a lot. I hear a lot on this podcast when I'm interviewing people. You know, I'm in, I interviewed... Uh, Chris Gillibo uh, last week. I'm not sure. I think it'll come out after this podcast. But, you know, that was also where we went in, in that conversation. And then it's cool with you. I remember us, you know, for a couple of years now, you mentioning to me, oh, I want to do a feature length doc. Like, that would be awesome. But, like, I don't know what to do it on. And, like, you know, there was kind of this, like, inside of yourself, you knew that this was this desire that was there. But, how it was actually going to, or if it was going to come to fruition was, was unknown. So what was that process like of you saying like, okay, here's this thing that would really mean a lot to me, but I don't know what it looks like. How did that start to become tangible? Um, well, first I wanted, I would just want to say that it's having just finished the film really a couple, like a month or two ago, putting the last edit on it. Um, it's it's kind of incredible now just to see the response and the feedback. I don't think I ever could have imagined that my first documentary would have had this kind of exposure um, as to where I just found out today that we sold we sold out our New York City premiere, which <laughs> four hundred four hundred and fifty tickets were sold. And like this is the first time people have paid to see something that I made um, as like a viewing viewing audience, not from a client side of things. So this is just unreal to me. And we're actually doing like a, Q, a live Q&A at the event. I think we're doing like a red carpet. It's, it's not very minimalist, but <laughs> we're, we're kind of we're going pretty big uh, for, for this premiere. But it's, uh, it's just incredibly exciting. And I don't think I ever could have imagined. I'm just very grateful um, that my first documentary has, has been able to get this uh, at, at, to this point. But in the beginning, like it, it just started out, like I was saying, it's just it's something that was – I was passionate about. I, I was involved in minimalism. I got connected with Joshua Fields Moburn from The Minimalists, like I had mentioned earlier. He was like the first uh, person, him and Ryan Nicodemus run their blog called The Minimalists. And they were the first people that I really kind of laid out what minimalism was for me. Um, so I, I you know, devoured a lot of the content on their site and you know, reading Leo Babauta and all these other people involved in the minimalist community. And then... Uh, I ended up actually getting a project with Josh uh, where I had done a little bit of work for him. We remained in touch, you know, Twitter friends, contacting every once in a while. And then he called me and said, hey, I want to do a documentary about minimalism. Um, and, you know, I had thought of this before. I was like, that would be really cool to do, but it's just not realistic um, at, the, at that time. But then when he brought it up, I was like, all right, well, here's people who I can partner with to help me make this thing that can – um, produce it and connect us with some of these these minimalists that are uh, really well known in, in their respective communities uh, and, and talk about this as a movement and as a society. So then it just started from there. And I, well, I was like, I'll think about it. <laughs> and then as I do with everything, because I don't like to make decisions just on the spot, um, really when it comes down to anything, I think you have to sleep on it and, and figure out whether it's the right move. And it did scare the shit out of me. I was, you know, because I'd never done a feature film before. The longest thing I'd ever produced is, you know, like five minutes for online consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a massive project. And maybe I don't know if I realized how intensive and how tough it was going to be. I'm glad I didn't know yeah. because 
Because like if I had known, maybe I wouldn't have done it. So being naive in the beginning, I think, is really important going into this project. Um, and then actually, th- like this is something that I, I had, I had the pleasure of interviewing Matthew Heineman, who was just nominated um, uh, for like best film, uh, Cartel Land. If you've heard of it, uh, he basically just like was embedded with the cartel in Mexico uh, for. I don't know, like a year or so, and then made this amazing documentary about it. But he he gave me advice where he said, you know, if your story doesn't change along the way, then you weren't listening. And I think that it's true for creating a narrative of a film, but I think it's also true in life and where you have to kind of change and adapt. And uh, my approach to filmmaking changed drastically, drastically from when we first started to when we ended I'm taking notes over here. If your story, <laughs> if your story doesn't change along the way, then then you weren't listening. So, I, I want to rewind for a second. So, how long ago was it when you were proposed with the opportunity to do the film with with Josh and Ryan? It must have probably like three years ago. I want to say it's and, hard. I'm not, yeah, and you know, being from from the outside perspective, being someone who was kind of in your life, but, you know, witnessing the update every few weeks or months, you were in this mode of, I am hustling my ass off to get myself out of this debt. So I'm working on my craft and I'm working on my foundation so that I can kind of pay this debt and stabilize myself and get out of my parents' house, etc. And then taking on this film, I know was uh, very pivotal and kind of iconic thing because in some sense you then had to switch modes and there was like jobs and opportunities and offerings that you were turning down and you're like no like I'm not going to bring I'm not going to take on that work or bring on this money because I'm going to instead invest my time and my energy into this passion project that I don't know if it's going to go anywhere but it's what I committed to yeah definitely and I think that there was a balance in the beginning because I still needed to make money. I still had to pay off my loans. I still had to uh, pay off my um, rent and, and all the, this, these other expenses that just come with life. Um, but I definitely had, I, I sacrificed a lot. I sacrificed months of work and I definitely turned down a lot of work that uh, I wouldn't have if I wasn't working on the film. I did still take a couple big projects. The one nice thing is that along this way, along m- through making the film, I was able to, uh, well, in part from living at home for the first two years uh, after college, was able to save up all this money, build my business to the point where I was able to pay off all my debts and become debt free. Mm-hmm. And that was that was during the filming of the documentary. So, like you said, it, it was kind of just a pivotal moment to where, like, wow, I'm actually pursuing something that I truly care about. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm able to still make money, pay off my debt, and and uh, live a life that. Um, was was fulfilling and, and that I enjoyed. So then, but then there was a shift. So then I, I think it is important to say that, like, once I became debt free, I was able to take more risks to the point where I literally turned down a couple months ago. I turned down, I think it was like a thirty thousand dollar project, which, like, at one time in my life would have been like, holy shit! <laughs> like, I, I couldn't imagine uh, being offered a project like that, and there's no way I absolutely could turn it down. But I had to turn it down because I was working on minimalism and we had a month left to finish this film before we had to get the final DCP wrapped up, which is uh, like the theatrical version of the film so they could actually distribute it at theaters across the country. Um, I had a strict deadline and I just made a decision that this is more important than the money. And I think that that I think it can happen before, you know, you, you pay off all your debts. But I, I got to say that paying off your debt and, and being um, debt-free was, is a huge factor in being able to pursue what you want and, and being able to turn down opportunities that may not align with your values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I go into this and, and aim to unpack it with you a little bit because I think when, when someone's listening to this, they're going to hear, oh my God, Matt made this feature-length documentary that now is blowing up and he's meeting all these amazing people and you know people are being impacted by his work and if only I could do that, my life would be better. But there's the reality of what that journey was like and that journey was a lot of diligent work and that you also, um, you know, you pieced it together over time. Uh, I brought up Chris Gillibo earlier because I was starting to 
bring us in one direction and had a mini brain fart and <laughs> forgot where I was bringing us. But the yeah. reason was is because I asked them, you know, going to every country in the world, like, would, were you just, like, chilling at home with, like, the homies and were like, you know, I want to go to every country in the world smoking weed? Like, wouldn't that be <laughs> sick? And he's like, no. He's like, you know, basically, he's like, I did what I loved, which was travel. And at some point, I was like, oh, it would be cool if I could go to 100 countries because I was already at, like, 70 and then I went to 100 and I was like, what if I just went to every country in the world? And there was this kind of progression of following what was important to you and then um, letting, letting that pan out and embracing the opportunities and then, and then the commitment of actually doing them because it's, it's fun to say like, oh man, the external, you know, look where I am now. But when you actually look like you were living at home with your parents, with your siblings, yeah. right? Like when I, when I left my job, dude, I would leave my house and I would carry like four Lara bars with me. Maybe you remember at some point meeting me eating a Lara bar. A, a Lara bar is, you know, it's basically just like a granola bar or something. But the reason is, is because they're two bucks. And I know if I bring four of them out with me when I leave my house, that for $8, I don't need to spend any money on food for the rest of the day if I'm out in Manhattan. And like, mm -hmm. there's a reality to making drastic changes in order to pursue the things that, that actually matter to you. And that, that brings us into the minimalism thread. It is about, you know, what is most important to me? And then how do I escape the social narrative that tells me life needs to be one way and create a new story, like you mentioned earlier? How do I rewrite my own story of life so that it aligns with the things that matter most to me? So, you know, bringing it back to, to minimalism as a whole, when when someone is kind of listening to this and they're like, all right, you know, minimalism, I'm starting to get the idea of, you know, what this is and, and how that might show up in my life. Um, who would you say is like a good candidate for going minimalism? As in, uh, can you, I don't really understand. <laughs> like, to, to unpack like, it, sure. So like if someone is listening, they're like, oh, this minimalism thing, like I kind of want to try it on a bit more, but I'm not really sure, you know, like if it's right for me, like, you know, is minim is minimalism something that you believe everyone should embrace or is there someone who's listening right now who, who you're like, all right, you know what, um, th this would be clear if I'm in this situation that minimalism would be something worth trying for me? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think that's one of the aims that we had in this documentary is because I think when a lot of people think of minimalism, uh, they think of that, you know, maybe the Chris Gillibeau type, the, you know, the, the guy that is traveling all around the world, just has a backpack and everything he owns is on his back. And we interviewed with Colin Wright, who that's literally him. He, every four months he travels to a new country and his, he's a blogger. So his readers literally get to vote where he gets to go next. So he's very much this free spirit where, um, the world is kind of open to him in that way. But that's not necessarily the life that I want to live. And I would say he's probably the only person that we filmed in the documentary that lived that kind of lifestyle. Most people have a house. Um, some people lived in tiny homes where they're living in 120 square feet. Other people lived in very large homes where 1,000, 1,200 uh, square feet. So I think that minimalism is very different. But I think the approach to it, is really just about being conscious of what you're consuming. And I think that it, it's a practice, just like meditation is. Uh, meditation is, um, you know, a practice that you, you do often enough, it's going to help improve your life. And I think minimalism is the same way, where if we can be a little bit more conscious about the things that we're bringing into our life, about the relationships we're bringing into our life, then I think we can lead much happier lives because most of the time we're just running on these automated, habitual, reflexive behaviors that have just been so ingrained in us um, that we don't think twice about them. So I think that's what it is. It's, minimalism is saying, let's, let's stop. Let's think about um, what I want out of life and what I want to bring into my life. And then, um, so I think, yeah, I think it can totally, anybody can use it as a practice. Some people can, go all in and maybe take it to the extremes uh, to where they have a hundred things or 50 things. And then other people, will, their life situation is completely different. Leo Babauta, who we interviewed, uh, it was totally a pleasure to interview him because he was kind of one of my main inspirations when I first started reading about self-development and, and minimalism. And he has seven kids and he's considered, considers himself a minimalist. And I think that 
that's a it's a good example just to see that no matter what circumstances surround your life, uh, you can use minimalism to to help improve it. Hmm. That's funny. I was going to ask you: Is there an area in your life where you're not a minimalist? But I see how that question applies to him with the seven kids. So, how about for you? Is there an area in your life where you know you you don't embrace this kind of um, Minimalism, and as I'm asking the question, I can actually see that when we define minimalism as just being conscious of the choices you make and focusing on what's important, that it's less relevant. Um, but does anything come up yeah. for you when I ask that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, and I think, I mean, like the easy answer is to say like experiences. Like I'm not a minimalist when it comes to experiences because you know I, I do value those. Um, but I, when it comes to material objects, because I think that's what's probably most interesting to people. Um, if you looked at my, like, like I was saying too, it's about balance and it's about certain times in my life. I may not be as minimalist as other times in my life. Mm. Um, regardless, it is about what you're bringing. Is this bringing value into my life? So if you came over my apartment right now, you'd probably look around and be like, this guy is not a minimalist. (laughs) He's a, he's a hack. He's a fraud because in my office, it's just like scattered with camera gear and lights and props and, because um, I'm working on my next feature documentary, which sometimes when you're creating something, especially something that um, kind of consumes your life in a way where uh, you just care so much about it that you're working on it every day and, and it, it's really one of your central, the central focus in your life. Um, through that creation, it tends to be a little bit messy, like the Big Bang. and <laughs> um, it's It's not clean. It's not pretty. But... Uh, at the end of the day, so say when this project is over, I am able to then clear out some of the stuff that I no longer need that I'm not using for this particular project uh, and then reassess what I might need for my next project. And, so, And whatever you don't need, you just pass it over to me because I don't live far away. So Exactly, yeah. I, well, either that or just return it. Or, <laughs> like I actually do – Like I, when I first started getting, getting into minimalism um, – it was kind of funny. Like I just got rid of all my stuff and a lot of it you would donate. A lot of it I would give to friends. Like I gave a guitar away to a friend just because it it just wasn't adding value to me, but it would add value to him. Mm. In a lot of ways I felt sorry for giving all this people my stuff. It's almost like I I did a couple drops at my brother's house where I just like dropped off bags of clothing, like a mini refrigerator um, and just random like knickknacks and stuff. Just a box I put in their attic where I'm like, I don't want to deal with it, which is maybe like a cheap way to go. But it's, um, it's freeing in a lot of ways to, to get rid of the stuff when you have it. And I, I do like that process uh, of just paring down and decluttering. It's, it's stress relieving in a way. Yeah, it's crazy. When I moved out of my last place, I had a two-bedroom apartment and I took everything and got rid of what I didn't feel I wanted anymore and then took everything and kind of stored it in a in a 8 by 8 bedroom or something. So my entire apartment got you know knocked down to that. And then I went traveling for a year and a half and had a backpack. So it got knocked down again. And I was, you know, it was crazy. It was like after the traveling, I just realized, holy shit, like my life is in no way um, worse. And and in very little way is it strained by only having a backpack's worth of things. And I mean, that's not what I'm preaching for other people. It was just my experience in, in that. Um, going going back to the film, Matt. You know, you interviewed sociologists, economists, psychologists, and a ton of other smart people. And was there anything that you learned as you were doing the interviews and talking to these people that was either like shocking for you or emotionally fired you up? Yeah, there were there were a couple moments for sure. I mean, just to give you an idea of, uh, we were talking about how you kind of have to. Um, I guess if you're not listening, the story is not going to change. So we started out just talking with um, minimalists and people who were practicing it. And then once we started to talk with some of these psychologists, economists, like you said, and we started to step back and see this context of consumerism within our society, um, I think in particular we had an interview with Juliet Shore, which was to me, like she's a genius. She's, She's just so smart, and she's written so many books on just our consumer society, how it relates to children, advertising to children. Um, and that interview, there were a couple of profound moments for me when, because I, I kind of had certain assumptions about our consumer society. I kind of thought that, so say one thing in particular, I think a common misconception, according to Juliet Shore, is that um, we consume because of advertising. 
when in reality advertising is likely just a reflection of our consumer behaviors to begin with as to the fact where if you got rid of all consumers uh, or if you got rid of all advertising, um, she, she says that our consumption levels would be relatively the same. They might drop a little bit, but relatively the same. Uh, and that's because most people's purchasing decisions are based on um, what our society values. So if you see somebody and, and, our, and social hierarchy as well. So those that are at the top of the social hierarchy are those that appear to be successful, that have this clothing and jewelry. Somebody takes an Instagram picture and uh, they have this like new watch, brand new watch that they, they're showing off on it. That's much going to be a much more likely way that somebody's going to want to go out and buy that watch than if they saw it in an advertisement. I think a lot of people are becoming de- desensitized by advertisements. They know that companies are trying to sell them stuff. Um, Hmm. So you that know, you know, let me let me jump in. Yeah. Save save your your thought where you want to take it. This it reminds me of an article that I read called "The Sociology of the Hipster," and basically when it looked at what is a hipster, um, generally hipsters will come from a lower socioeconomic class than necessarily you know the the high class, let's say. But what they do is they influence trends and arts and culture to get. Uh, to basically growth hack the social class ladder. And so what they're doing is they're putting on that like cowboy hat or this like new flashy thing that then the the celebrities or the, you know, the high class um, lifestyle people um, start to model. And it's a way hipsterology is kind of like you're kind of like growth hacking the, the social economic scale based on what's going to make you look like you're the newest and, and coolest with the latest trends. Yeah, that's actually interesting because um, at, at one point in time, advertising was what set the uh, what defined culture, what defined what was relevant. Because advertising really um, came to power during the Mad Men era after war- World War II, where a lot of immigrants were coming to the country and they were trying to figure out what was important, what should they be buying. And advertisers, and you can even look at the way that advertiser, advertisers marketed back then, it was much different. It was much more straightforward, like buy this product, this is going to make your life much better. Mm-hmm. Now it's more subtle. And now it's advertisers look to um, those that are like the arbiters of cool within these small communities, within like a hipster community, within the hip hop community, looking at all these subcultures and finding out what's trendy and what's cool there. And then they bring that into the, the advertising. So that's where advertising is just a reflection of wh- where people's values are currently at. Um, I think one of the other profound things that I learned from her was the fashion industry, about the fashion industry, which is really just a, a reflection of uh, many other industries now at large, where the fashion industry, uh, clothing in general, used to be... Uh, it's it's evolved so much over the past, I guess, like 100 years or so. Um, clothing used to be something that was a commodity that, that actually didn't lose its value. So you could buy a T-shirt and that T-shirt could then be resold and you would barely lose any money. But now clothing is valued not because of its like the material value, how much it costs to make it, which now is incredibly cheap, which is just a couple cents. Now it's valued based upon what society says uh, is the cost of that T-shirt, of like a Kanye West T-shirt that cost $120. But then they buy that T-shirt, and then literally it's worthless after that. You could you could barely give that away to somebody. Um, and that has just made a profound effect on the economy because people are now buying and getting rid of stuff at unprecedented levels because they no longer have value once they're used. Um, you buy dishware, you buy a toaster, and after a couple of years, now that toaster is no longer in fashion. It's no longer fashionable. Um, so then you get rid of it, and then you buy a new one. And then that just has these kind of profound effects on um, the environment that I don't think a lot of people uh, intended or a lot of people saw coming. Yeah. It, it seems like the American dream, when we hear that terminology, that for me personally, I think of, you know, oh, the American dream, it's the, the white picket fence and the dog and the kids and the car and the good job. But it seems like, you know, unconsciously, 
the American dream for our generation has become something else. And maybe that ties into consumption, consumerism, advertising. Uh, what do you see is, as kind of our unconscious American dream that I think a lot of us are, are present day maybe unconsciously buying into? Well, I, I do think that there's a shift now. Um, and I think that it, th- like this minimalist movement, um, simple living movements, lifestyle design in general, people who are being more aware of um, what they want out of life, I do think that it's growing and it's starting to change as to where people now are focusing more on what do I want out of life uh, as opposed to just listening to this this path that they've always been down. I think a lot of people are, uh, more people than ever now are taking on untraditional careers like startups or starting their own business, entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I think that that in a lot of ways is the new American dream. It's like you look at which actually, like, there, there's a negative side of that because you look at the Mark Zuckerbergs and these startup millionaires and billionaires, and people would be like, "That's what success is now: is to run your own company." And because people look up to the the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world um, as people who are now successful, so I think that poses its own challenges. And I think um, it, it seems like that's the new American dream now. Yeah, it's funny. It's like being an entrepreneur and living an extraordinary life somehow became glamorized. But dude, I know a lot of entrepreneurs and that shit is not fun a lot of the time. Like the realities of what it is to own your own business and be responsible for bringing in the money yourself and doing your marketing and, and sales and fulfillment and the industry and, you know, then dealing with, uh, I haven't been in the game long enough to have kind of gone through a dip in the economy, but that's one of the things personally that I'm paying attention to, right? I'm, I'm in this for the yeah. long haul. So how do I make my company recession proof, let's say? Um, and, uh, but the, the reality is very different when you actually talk to people who are living the life that is often so glamorized is that there's a tremendous amount of inner growth and inner character and inner strength that needs to be built in order to sustain a foundation to build these lives that are so glamorized. And when I hear people talking about, you know, wanting to be entrepreneurs or work for themselves, like all that is amazing and focus on at the bottom of the day, what's going to enable you to do that, which is to be able to provide a valuable service. And that's going to come from you having developed uh, your skill set to a capacity where you can provide that valuable service. Yeah, and I think that actually goes back to what you mentioned before is that um, a lot of people think that you look at the end result, you see the success people have or the perceived success that people have, and then you think that it was – you don't see all the work that went into it. I mean one of the early books or e-books that I read was actually Chris Gilbo's – I think it was like 300-some days to overnight success, which is a lot of people just see that and you're like, oh, that person's successful and it just happened overnight – when in reality, there's a lot of work, a lot of hard work that goes into um, these these big projects. Like, like minimalism in particular was, it was like the hardest thing that I've ever worked on. Uh, and I almost like lost my mind in the middle of this project to the point where pretty much recut the entire film halfway through. Got to a point where I thought, uh, like I knew that it was pretty good, but then... I just had like an epiphany moment where it's like, this is not the way that it's going. Had a couple of those interviews and with Juliet Shore and others that really set me off on this path to, to make something that was more in line um, what I need uh, as a filmmaker. And it was, dude, it was so hard. Like I had so many 13 hour days where my girlfriend would leave at seven in the morning uh, to go to work and I'd be working already. And then she'd get back and I'd still be working, <laughs> uh, taking like a peanut butter and sandwich break for 15 minutes uh, and then just getting back to editing. And it's um, I don't think that that's sustainable. I don't know if I recommend it for people. <laughs> I think that there's a better way to do it. But regardless, no matter what, uh, whether you kind of crunch it out in one month and, and bust your ass to get a project done or if you stretch it out over a few months um, and maybe save a little bit of your sanity, you're going to put in a tremendous amount of work to be able to um, see any kind of results uh, where a lot of people might say it's um, they've been successful. 
Yeah, yeah, and man, it's those moments that are the most challenging for us, the ones that were like, oh, fuck, I'd rather be going through anything but this right now. Like, those are the ones that shape us most and give us our deepest strength and build our character, and in hindsight, end up being the most valuable part of it, because later on, it tends to give us this gem of wisdom that enables us to navigate a future situation which really matters to us, which, you know, going back in the past at that time when you initially went through it, you would have had no idea how this was going to help you in the future. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's weird because I think when I was younger, uh, you kind of, I kind of thought that I knew everything or like you start to read a couple of self-development books and you're like, okay, I got it. I got this. (laughs) And then like when you actually have these life experiences where you're like rock bottom and like it comes in waves where you, you kind of, you hit a high and then you face some struggles and it just kind of keeps going up and down. Um, but it's like going through this and, and realizing how much I've learned just from this one project makes me realize that like, I'm not even close, <laughs> that I have so much more to learn. And I think that's what it's all about. It's, that's the process is continually learning from your mistakes, learning from your successes, um, and then getting better in your art and, and what you can bring to the world. And that's actually, this is something that we've talked about too, which is, uh, I kind of made a shift where most of my life I was always asking what I wanted out of life. And then eventually I just made this realization. That it's like, instead of just asking, cause I, I got everything that I wanted and, and it still wasn't, I wasn't happy just with that stuff. I wasn't settled. So I started to ask, um, what can I give instead and what can I provide? And I found that that outlook is a lot less stressful. So if I'm not making minimalism for myself and my own success, I'm making it for other people because I want them to be successful and I want them to get some value out of it and I want their lives to be changed. Um, it's just if you can bring that into your life every day and just keep reminding yourself that that's why you're doing it, it's going to make life so much easier. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, all the great masters that I've ever you know, heard of or studied and deep in my, in my uh, searching for how to create a great life always come back to that. It's like service what can i give what can i provide and not at the cost of your own sense of self and well-being and who you are you're not giving yourself you're you're not violating yourself in order to serve or help which i think there's a certain population of our community who can relate to like what are you talking about it's all i do is give and provide and it's time to like you know and mm-hmm. i and i hate it because i'm not taking care of myself so we got to start with making sure that it matters to you and you're doing stuff that you know is in alignment with who you are and what matters um, but from that point that you ultimately connect yourself to something larger and mm-hmm. you know matt with with the film with minimalism um for me, at the end of the day, I love the mindset shifts. I love the high-level overview of what's happening in our culture and how does that affect our kind of status quo and, and all of our lives. And then I'm also wondering about you know just the actionable steps. And if someone's listening to this and they're like, yo, minimalism sounds dope. I'm into it. And what action can I take that will help me kind of harness the power of this minimalist philosophy? Um, where would you guide us? I think it first starts with awareness, uh, to take a step back, to, to slow down, to start to look at your things. Um, if you wanted to start to, I mean, the first thing that you would do is um, to start paring down, start looking at the stuff that you have in your life that you haven't used for the past six months. Um, so if you haven't used something in the past six months, then either donate it, you can put it into three piles, donate it. You can sell it or you can throw it away. Um, and that's the first thing. That's the first step is just kind of purging and categorizing in your life uh, what you need and what you don't. Um, so at the end of the day, you'll end up with everything that you use. And actually, Ryan Nicodemus from The Minimalist did this uh, thing. It's, it's maybe a little bit extreme, but I think it illustrates the point. He had a, a packing party where he packed up all of this stuff in his life, everything in his entire apartment from the utensils to his pencils to, um, I think probably everything except for food because, you know, he has to eat, but he basically put everything into a box, packaged it up. And then he started to take things out as he needed them. And then what he found after one month was that most of this stuff was still in boxes and he had maybe opened up two, three boxes, uh, and had used a fraction of what he actually had. So I think if 
people can start to realize that they aren't actually getting value and they aren't actually using a lot of the stuff that's in their life. Um, the important thing then is going forward, uh, making sure that we don't just bring that stuff back into our life. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like a, a fad diet where you can lose the weight, but a lot of times you might just put it right back on if it's if there's not something a deeper meaningful purpose there behind it if you're not really worried about your your health overall um but i think that if if people can start to be a little bit more conscious a little bit more aware of the stuff that they bring into their life going forward um i think that we're not only going to live happier lives but i think it's going to have a positive impact on the environment on uh global warming and climate change and i think it's gonna um you know bring us all a little bit closer together Mm. Yeah, man. And for my own experience, minimalism kind of came into my life without me asking it to. It was just like, oh, if I want this thing, then minimalism is the path to that thing. And so while I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as as a minimalist, as who I am or kind of what I do or teach, it, it just so it was the the path like, oh, if you want more time to do things that matter to you, then you'll need to stop spending money on things that don't matter to you. Therefore, you're going to consume less things. Therefore, you're going to be more minimalist. Right. And I think that's, I mean, that's a good point too. A lot of people don't think about how much time and money they spend on the things that are in their life, especially like the, the big budget purchases. So if you buy a car for $25,000, $30,000, that you may not be using, say if you live in a city, for instance, um, what could you have done with that twenty or thirty thousand dollars? How much time did it take you to make that twenty or thirty thousand dollars? How many hours did you sacrifice for this now object? Uh, I think that's really important to realize is that, and and then now it's you have that time to upkeep and take care of and wash the car and you're spending the money on getting the car fixed and updated. Totally. And um, I think that people don't realize how much time they're actually draining by focusing on material things versus um, versus people. I wonder how many people listening to this are going to go sell their Kias afterwards, man. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I still have my Kia. Well, <laughs> still have my Kia. It's paid off. Um, and there are uh, some mice that have, are now living inside of it. So. Oh, no, come on. I swear to God. I, um, Welcome I, I to Brooklyn. I know, exactly. So at least you know I'm providing some shelter for... Um, some animals, <laughs> but it's, uh, I think I use the car. That's actually something that I'm starting to think about is, is when do I get rid of my car? I kind of, I like it, I, but I only use it a few times a month. I use it to visit family and friends. So in that way, that car is access to those closest to me. So I hold on to it for that specific reason. Um, but there might come a time in my life, not where I don't value my family and friends, but where, um, maybe I use a zip car or something else to get around. Yeah, well, and then that's the great awareness, right? It's like most people are like, no, I can never get rid of my car, and they're not willing to go a level deeper. And for you, it's like, well, I don't know. If I was willing to look at this, like, why do I need my car? Well, use it a couple times a month to see my family and, and friends. And so what's another way that I could do that, and would that require less value of mine than it costs for me to put all of this money or value or whatever it is into keeping this car? So, you know, using an Uber. Like there's a, a buddy of mine who's 31. He's never had a car. We grew up together. We hang out all the time. And he's like, yeah, like I just take cabs instead. Now you might say like, oh, this guy is, you know, he's spending a lot of money. He's taking cabs. But he's like, no, like I don't have a car. I don't have car insurance. I don't pay for gas. I don't pay for repairs. I don't pay for tickets. Like it's way cheaper to just take cabs everywhere than to have a car. And, you know, that I think minimalism really invites that level of thinking as to what is it that you have and that you do and why do you do those things? And is there another way to do it where you get to have more of the things that actually matter to you? Yeah. And, and I think that um, probably if I was going to give advice for people who are just starting out on their own minimalist journeys, um, <clears throat> don't get rid of the car right away. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe if you have <laughs> if you have four cars, maybe get rid of a couple cars. Uh, but the, the big purchase items, those things that you've already invested a lot of money into, um, they may not be the, 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 the first thing you want to get rid of. I think it's probably a little bit easier to get rid of those things that are a little bit cheaper that are easily replaceable because at the end of the day, if you get rid of something and you realize, oh, I need two spatulas, go out to the store and buy a spatula. It's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, so that's, it makes the stress a little bit less on if you get rid of a car, you've you may have burned a hole in your pocket. 
if you need to buy another car well we'll leave it there uh right on man dude congratulations uh i think the movie is in over 200 theaters is that right it's coming out in over 200 theaters screening yeah so it's it's kind of like a kickstarter in a way um where we have to sell out 50 percent of the seats at these particular venues um so right now we've sold about 5,800 tickets across the United States. Um, many of those theaters are quote-unquote unlocked. Many of them aren't. So if you're interested in seeing the film, you can go to minimalismfilm.com slash watch, uh, and there's a map there where you can kind of zoom in on your city to see if it's playing. Uh, and then if we get 50% of the seats sold out, that theater unlocks, and the screening will become available officially. That's amazing. And if for some reason they can't see it at a city near them, do you guys have any plans for a uh, release date? No, they're screwed. They're they're not going to be able to watch. (laughs) No, we were going to you know release online. We haven't. This is very new territory for us. So ideally, we will be able to link up with somebody like Netflix or Amazon um, streaming to to make the film um, come out. But I would say after a theatrical release, a month or so after it, I'd probably say within the next six months will likely release that online version. So good. Well, yeah, guys, head on over to minimalismfilm.com and, uh, you know, check out the trailer. There's extra clips there. Sign up for, uh, you know, follow these guys. And it's exciting, man. So congrats on it. Thanks for being here today. And uh, good stuff, my brother. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Cool. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship to get to know each other better over time and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.